0: Our Father, we know that you're the source of all things. You're the source of good. Uh, You're the source of life. And uh, we thank you uh, now for the birth of Peter just recently, just a few weeks ago, and also this birth of Callum as well. And uh, we thank you for the the good health results for Sue Harrington as well. We are very thankful for your answers to prayers there. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you're doing here amongst us at Victor Harbour and also... Uh, around the Trinity Network, to draw people to yourself through the life-giving gospel. And we do pray that you would continue your work of of drawing people into eternal fellowship with you. And Father, we thank you that you do this work amongst us. Please uh, help us uh, to continue to be faithful in, in our lives. Lord, we are about to open your word, and so we pray for your... Uh, your encouragement to us through it, your your instruction to us about yourself and about the world in which we live. Please do challenge us and shape us and make us wise, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, uh, turn with me then to page one uh, or whatever page it is on your Bible uh, that Genesis begins. And the Bible begins... And the, uh, the reading will come up on the screen behind me as well. And also you should have the place marked for you in the Bibles if you received one on your way in. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has food with fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I will give green plant for food. And it was so. God saw All that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done.
1: Some of us are shorter. It would be great to leave your Bibles uh, open at that opening part of Scripture. And uh, let me just pray for us as we start. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do speak to us through your word and as we encounter you here at the start of the Bible, um, explaining who you are, that you'll give us insight, uh, that you'll give us not only an understanding of who you are, but the implications of where we sit in your plans. Uh, Father, we pray you'll speak to us and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Mark said, we've uh, opened up to the first page of the Bible, and I don't need to tell most of you that as we do that, we immediately enter into contemporary debates. Uh, Lots of different issues uh, have been debated around these chapters in recent years. Uh, There's a debate about creation and evolution, uh, issues to do with how old is the earth, are we talking about six 24-hour days, all those sort of questions sort of rush into this space. And I'm aware that as I start, there's a room full of people from very different sorts of backgrounds. So your great goal for me as I open up this part of the Bible may be that I spend my time disproving modern scientific theories about the nature of uh, the earth and its origins. Or it may be that because of your background, what you'd love me to do is to seamlessly synthesise those modern scientific theories... Uh, with a view of the creator God that we get here in Genesis chapter 1 and show you how they connect together. Or it could be that you are here today and you may not be sure that you believe in the God of the Bible. And one reason is because your um, scientific presuppositions do not allow for a creator God. We all hit this from very different angles. And what I want to say is it's, it's not wrong to ask the questions about the interaction between the Bible and science. That's not a wrong question to ask. But I want to suggest that it's essentially misplaced when we come to this part of the Bible. And I want to try and explain that by way of uh, an analogy. All right? I want you to uh, pretend or imagine uh, that you are in your first year at, let's say, Adelaide University, right? Now, for some of us, like me, that's a long throwback, and for some of you, even further. But just just imagine, right? First year university, and you're doing a medical degree. And you're coming to the end of the year, and your big fear is to do with the anatomy exam. How do you cram all that knowledge into your brain about the human body and regurgitate it into a test paper? But fortunately, the professor who's teaching this course let you know that for the first time in the history of Adelaide University Medical School, you'll be able to bring the textbook into the exam with you, right? Open book, anatomy exam, and the the class rejoices, right? And you're in the class, so you rejoice. Right, that's okay, you don't need to do it. But um, everyone's very pleased, right? And then you're all milling around the big exam hall together, And you have the textbook which is 1,800 pages thick that the professor of the course has written and uh, all your fellow students have got that book in their hands except for one person that you spy across the foyer who doesn't have this book. They have a different book in their hand and you know it's not the right book. They have this book in their hand and you immediately make your way across because you're worried for them And then when you get closer, you see that the book they're holding in their hand is this book, right? The Australian Women's Weekly Cookbook, right? And you think, no, 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 no. This is a disaster. It's hopeless. And so you you ask your friend, what on earth have you done bringing the Australian Women's Weekly Cookbook to the anatomy exam? And your friend uh, gives you that knowing look and says, well, you know, you are what you eat, right? <laughs> and, while you get the point the person's making, right? There's a, there's a connection between uh, physiology and what we, food we put into the body and that sort of thing, but you're not all that confident that this book is going to help them all that much when it comes to an anatomy exam, okay? Now, I want to suggest to you that it's a little bit like that when we come to Genesis chapter 1. That is... When you come to those questions raised by modern science, that's not why Genesis 1 has been written. But I do want to say that this part of the Bible, these opening chapters, are profound and completely accurate and trustworthy when it comes to more important questions. And those more important questions are these Uh, Who is God? Who are we? And what is our purpose in this world? What's the world like? Why is the world such a funny mixture of beauty and glory and wonderful things, and yet heartache and pain and disaster? Why do we live in a world just like that? Those are the questions that these opening chapters of the Bible are here to teach us about. So rather than impose our questions on the Bible, what I want to do is turn to this opening chapter, Genesis chapter 1, and let God address us and raise the questions and give us the answers that are important. And particularly over these two weeks, uh, we're going to look at what God says to us about who he is, and then next week we'll look at what God says to us about who we are. Two core and essential questions. Okay, there's an outline on the leaflet if you'd like to follow along, but let's jump in. When you uh, heard Genesis chapter 1 read so brilliantly well by Mark, uh, what were your impressions there? Yeah, how did you feel as that chapter unfolded? Maybe you felt like it was a little repetitious. You know, it seems to be quite formulaic as you go through the chapter. Possibly by the end of it you felt a little bit bored uh, because, as I say, the pattern seems to be very well established. Possibly you thought it was even a little childish. I mean, after all, who starts off a great work of writing with these words in the beginning. But what I want to suggest to you is that these opening chapters of the Bible are profound and sophisticated works of literature. And before I look at the content of them, I just want to highlight some features that help us get the fact that this is very carefully constructed. So, for example, as you went through this chapter... You would have picked up the fact that the, uh, the number seven is used consistently. So there are uh, seven days. Uh, the first sentence has seven Hebrew words. The second sentence has 14 Hebrew words, which if you're good at your times table, you get the point. Right? Fourteen words. Seven times we're told, and God made. Seven times, and it was so. Seven times, it was good. In the Bible, fairly consistently, the use of that number seven is to uh, capture the idea of wholeness or completeness or perfection, the ideal, and that's certainly what's happening here in Genesis chapter one. Even the structure for each day is highly structured. Uh, If we take the first day, you pick up that there are four stages, and these are repeated for each of the days. Um, First stage is there is a command from God. Verse 3, let there be light. Second stage, fulfilment. There was light, verse 3. Third stage, there's an explanation or an elaboration, verse 4. The light was good. And then at the end of each of these days, you get that day formula, verse 5. There was evening, there was morning, the first day. And even the structure of the days, as you put them together, there's connection. Uh, For example, there's day one, where God creates light, and then day four, where there's the creation of the lights, the greater and the lesser light. Now, some people have said, ah, this is obviously, you know, uh, wrong, because how can you have light, day one, without the sun and the moon, day four? Now, can I say that that's it? The writer of the Bible isn't stupid, right? Uh, That is, the point that is being made is God is the creator of light and the means by which the light is created. It's actually a deliberate uh, way of expressing the overarching nature of God. But what you pick up here is the great sense of order, structure, purpose, and care that's taken with this part of the Bible. Now, the key word, if you had to come up with the key word from this chapter to select one word uh, from this opening chapter that you thought uh, captured the essence of what the chapter was all about, which word would you have picked? What I'm going to do is actually give you a chance to talk to each other. You have one word, so this is only going to take you four seconds, right? And I want you to, and let me say, you won't have to swap, you won't have to yell it out or anything, right? There's no embarrassment factor here, right? But talk to each other. One word you have, swap it, and we'll come back in just a moment, okay? One word from this part captures the first chapter. What is it? Go for it. Okay, you, you could have appropriately selected a number of different words, so um, don't, don't feel bad if you don't get the one that I think is, is the best one, but it could have been creator or creation or... But I think the, the obvious one from Chapter 1 is God. Uh, now, I know that's sort of obvious, obvious, but, uh, but it is. See, God is mentioned 35 times in this opening section from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 3. Um, 35 is, for those who are good at times tables, seven times five. Uh, my wife thinks that that's a bit of a stretch, but I'm running with it, all right? Let's, uh, he, God is the hero of the story, and he is the subject of almost every sentence. Let's just dig in and just see how God is portrayed in this opening part of the Bible. As uh, Duncan so helpfully did uh, before in the kids' talk, uh, God is the one who exists before anything. In the beginning, God. He's not created. He is there. And then God creates. God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, It is God who brought the universe into existence, which just highlights his extraordinary nature and capacity and power. And the universe is vast. Uh, Even with all our technology, uh, we struggle to explore uh, how great the universe is. Uh, I looked looked at Google the other day, so I must be right, and it said that... um, there are over 400 billion stars, they estimate, in the universe and over 170 million galaxies. Now, that, that, I just cannot get my head around that. And Genesis chapter 1 is talking about the God who brought that into existence, the vastness of it, but also the, the intricacy of creation. Uh, when you see um, a spider's web, or if you're a scientist and you consider subatomic sequencing, the fine detail or components that go into the structure of our universe, it is just amazing. So it's no wonder the psalmist says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, for creation does that. We're told that everything is created for a purpose, As we went through the chapter, uh, God declares everything he's made is good. Good, 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 good. And then you get to the sixth day when we're talking about humanity and it's very good. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Now this idea of um, good or very good is is not so much a, a moral statement, um, good as opposed to de- degenerate or bad. Uh, rather, it's a statement of fitness for purpose. Uh, it it has the intention and meaning and fulfills the function that God intends. We went to a place like Isaiah forty five, uh, verse eighteen. It reads this way: He who created the heavens and the earth, He is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. And I want to suggest to you that all modern, orderly, scientific investigation, it stems from an understanding that God has actually constructed the world that way. It it runs because of that. And the idea of the the goodness here uh, picks up on the very character of God, uh, that, that nature actually reflects who God is, uh, his generosity, his kindness, uh, his creativity, his love, his integrity. Now, if we go to Genesis chapter 3, which we went not in these couple of weeks, but you get a, an insight into how the world runs off the rails, uh, we actually encounter some of the problems Uh, that occur and why they exist in our planet. However, I do just want to say that God has created a world that reflects his character in a whole range of ways. It is good. And then, of course, as we heard in the kids' talk, God creates by his word. In Genesis, there is not one scientific formula because that isn't the point. God creates Everything from nothing by speaking. And God said. And it was so. Now, can I say that that creates controversy in our age, but it was equally radical in the age when the Bible came into existence. Um, it's a while ago since I was at Bible college, but I remember when I was there, we studied the ancient Babylonian creation myth called the Enuma Elish. Right? Now, the way the Babylonians understood the creation of the world was that all, at one stage all the gods came together and they had a fight. Right? It was sort of a territorial dispute. And, uh, and, for example, when it came to the creation of the world, this is the way it happened uh, from memory. Right? The, the one god pulled out his sword... Chopped off the head of another god, and that head rolled away and became the earth. Okay. Now, um, can I? I'm not trying to mock it so much as point out how different it is to what we have here in the scriptures. Total order, um, total system, total authority, and no chaos. Complete for purpose. Now, can you imagine how that? that intersected with other world theories at the time. But I want to, I want to suggest too, though, that it, it, it really does cut across modern views to do with how our world exists. So the modern big, big Bang theory is that science reaches essentially into the past to explore the foundations of our world, it hits a wall, and then it speculates about a big, spontaneous event. Um, Again, just a very different perspective on how a world came into existence. Uh, This world is not here by random chance. God speaks, and the world and all its components and all its mechanisms comes into existence. The other thing that's clear, it doesn't come out as strongly here in Genesis chapter 1, but it's equally clear, is that God sustains everything that he has made. That is, he didn't sort of um, create it and like a bowling ball set it going and it keeps spinning. Uh, That is, the God of the Bible superintends everything he's made in a comprehensive sort of manner. In Acts chapter 17... Uh, Paul is speaking to a group, Paul the Apostle, to a group of unbelievers, and he's reflecting on Genesis 1 and he says, it's God who gives all men life and breath and everything else. Isn't that an interesting idea, that God is the one who gives all people every breath they take? As we sit here in this room, uh, you, your heart does not beat Unless God keeps it beating. God takes his hand off this world, even for a moment, that's what happens. Uh, It is a phenomenal insight into the God who has created all things and sustains all things. There's so much more we could explore about the nature and the character of God uh, just from this chapter alone. But what I want to do is step back from that for a moment and just with the the time we've got remaining, just to think through some of the implications that flow from this understanding and how it contrasts with other uh, worldviews. So let me do that for just a few moments. We've already seen the the way in which uh, the comparisons between uh, the God of the Bible, and other ancient uh, world views of how things came into existence. Uh, most of the ancient religions had a uh, stack of gods lining up to do various things and undertake various tasks in this world. They were, they were polytheistic, uh, polygod sort of nations. But Genesis 1 and the Bible blows this idea completely out of the water. Not many gods, one god. Not lots of options, only one. And it's just as radical today. We're talking about the God who made everything. And that even is, I think, highlighted by the word that is used for God here in this chapter. When you get to, if you've got your Bibles there and you turn to um, chapter 2, verse 4. Notice what it says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. What you've got there in chapter 2, verse 4, is the Lord God, often translated as Yahweh. It's the personal, promise-keeping, covenant God of the Bible. That's the way it's, he's referred to there. But up until chapter 2, verse 3, if you go to chapter 1, verse 1, notice what it says there, in the beginning... God. Um, now, that's actually a different word for God at that point. Right? Elohim rather than Yahweh. Now, you may think, why do I need a Hebrew lesson on a Sunday morning at 10 o'clock? You don't really. But, but let me explain why I think the two are being used. From chapter 2, verse 4, the, the covenant-keeping personal God. But in chapter 1, the big idea here that is being made is that there is only one God. Right? The God. And how often is that stated here in the first chapter or up to chapter 2, verse 3? 35 times. Now, if you're listening to this, hear what it's saying. How many gods are there? One. Who made the heavens and the earth? The God. Who sustains it? The God. Who upholds it by his hand? The God. And I'm just going to say this 35 times, right? The God, the God, the God, the God, the God. Do you think there's a point being made? There is only one God. The God who created all things. The God who sustains all things. The God who reaches into this world and desires for people to have a relationship with him. That's the point that's being made. And even down to the details, um, in the ancient world with many gods, uh, normally the planets were regarded as gods. Uh, So normally the the sun and the moon were allocated god names because they influenced uh, what happened in this world. Notice how Genesis 1 describes the sun and the moon? doesn't even name them. They're just... uh, the greater and the lesser light. Just the greater and the lesser light. Because the God is the one who made them and controls them. It's deliberate. It cuts across ancient world views, but also uh, alternative religions in that modern day sense. Uh, lots of people think that all religions are essentially the same. Right? They're all talk about God and love, their alternative paths to the same destination. Uh, But even a quick look at modern religions tells you that this isn't the case. Uh, Take Buddhism, for example. It's the fastest growing religion in Australia. It's growing off a really small base. So there aren't very many Buddhists around. Uh, But if you've got three Buddhists and you've got six, they're growing by 100%. So it's it's still a small base, but it is becoming more and more popular in our country. Now, a Buddhist view of the world is this. There's no God. Uh, We get enlightenment through escaping this physical world. And in order to gain that enlightenment, you have to reject pleasure in order to soar. Now, notice how contrasting that is with what the Bible says and the God of the Bible. Here in Genesis 1, God is good. He makes a good world... To be enjoyed. It's full of wonder and beauty, and pleasure is good. It's such an alternative way of thinking about who God is and what He does. And even when you measure it against uh, modern non religious worldviews, the contrasts are just as stark. Uh, take atheism, this has become really popular. Uh, in the Western world in recent years, made popular by people like uh, Hitchens and uh, Lawrence Krauss, uh, Richard Dawkins before him. Uh, Basically, this is a view that says, we're just random collations of atoms uh, caught up in the slipstream of a meaningless universe. One author put it like this, we just are for a little while anyway, and then we aren't. Uh, Sue and I went to the funeral of a good friend at the end of last year, so about 10 months ago. We'd known her for 40 years. At the funeral, uh, it was explained to us that uh, this friend who died uh, thought that life was quite circular. She died of cancer. She knew she was dying. And uh, she believed that sort of your life continued on through your children. And her great desire was that her ashes should be taken back and scattered at the place where she was born to capture that sense of the circularity of life. Now, you know where this theology comes from, don't you, right? It's the Lion King. Um, that, that's where it comes from, that whole circularity and uh, a sort of endless cycle of existence. But can I say this is so different to the perspective we get here in Genesis chapter 1. The God who creates. He gives you meaning and purpose. Humankind is the pinnacle of his creation. And we are imbued with value and purpose. And we'll come back to that next week. But we are made for relationship with God, and we're made for eternity. Or we'll take um, another worldview that I think has become popular uh, more recently: the whole question of environmentalism. It's a huge issue in a world of global warming, rising sea levels, uh, carbon gas emissions, coal-fired power, and all the things that go with that sort of debate. We've got a world population that's rapidly rising and uh, outstripping uh, the replenishment of the resources in our planet. Now, for some, the the creation is actually their god. Uh, they derive their sense of purpose and meaning and value from the created order around them. And on that view, of course, it's very hard to distinguish between the value of a... Human being and an animal, because uh, they're all just uh, creatures. That's why some who are in the green movement can talk about the murder of whales, uh, because they attribute the same value to both species. But Genesis corrects that thinking uh, that is, God is mirrored in his creation, he made it, so it reflects his character in different ways, but he's not captured by his creation. As long as if he's trapped in his creation. You won't find God by looking at a tree or studying a rock, even though they might reflect him in some way. And the second thing is that God is the one who gives creation its value and purpose. He determines that. Now God, as we'll see next week, has determined that people actually have more value than animals. Now, let me say, I think... Christians have an enormous amount to contribute to this environmental debate, and they should. That is, if you get the nature of the God who made the world, you get his purposes for this world, and will act in accordance with that, um, lining up with the intentions of the creator. Uh, And often, I think, throughout history, Christians have been a bit slow to pick up on what that means, to superintend uh, creation in that way. Uh, But this issue, nonetheless, is, is huge. But, you know, the religion that I think dominates Australians today is the religion of uh, materialism or hedonism. Uh, that, I think, is, is written into our, our nature. The goal of life becomes the acquisition of stuff or experiences. Um, that becomes our purpose. It's a worldview that Western nations are caught up with in for obvious reasons. And you know it is, too. Um, Back in May, when we had our election, seems like a long time ago, wasn't that that long ago, what were the big issues for the election? What were the ones that were going to determine whether a a government got elected or not? Let me tell you what they were, as far as I can tell from the press. Issues to do with franking credits and superannuation and home ownership and negative gearing and living wages. Those are the popular things. They're all to do with whether our government can deliver on the standard of living that we want to have. Uh, That is the world view. But but do you understand why that's, that's so wrong as a basis for it? You see, it's all back to front, according to Genesis. If you and I get our meaning from the created order what we own or what we earn or the pleasure we get from creation. Do you understand how back to front that is? See, God creates us to enjoy his world. We don't get our meaning from the created world telling us who we are. We're meant to get it from the God who made us? It's, it's just turning the world upside down to do it in that way. Friends, what does it mean to believe in the God who created everything? It will have implications for a worldview based on an atheistic, biological, evolutionary understanding of the universe. Don't get me wrong, it will intersect with that worldview, but there are some things that are actually much more essential and much more important. When you understand who the creator God is, it will cause you to be humble because that's what it means to believe in a creator God. We're not random accidents. We've been made by God for relationship with him and in his service. And when we understand who he is and his capacity, that causes us to realise how small we are. Listen to the psalmist again from Psalm 8. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them, or human beings that you care for them? And also there's accountability, Uh, what's very clear when you read these opening chapters of the Bible is that God is the owner of everything that he has made. And we're not free to squat here in this world on our own terms. If you've ever been a tenant, you know that to ignore the landlord is stupid uh, and it's likely to lead to a very short-term consequence for you in terms of getting kicked out. Uh, Foolish for us to squat here on our own terms when the owner and landlord is God himself. We are accountable for the way in which we live. But let me just conclude with this point. I think one of the most profound things that comes out of looking at this opening chapter of the Bible is that when you're confronted with this God, you understand that he is a God you can trust. Uh, I've got five grandchildren now. Peter's the last of them. My first grandson is Ollie. When Ollie was about 18 months old, he was around at our place. We've got these stairs at our place. There's about um, 10 steps, wooden steps going up and then eight sort of to the, the next floor. And they're hard wooden steps and because the kids were little... I was doing my grandfatherly, you know, helicopter grandfather hovering, you know. His parents didn't seem to be worried about this 18-month-old going up and down these stairs, but the grandfather was. I was trying to make it look like I wasn't worried, you know, but, uh, but in fact, I was just sort of hovering there. Ollie went up the stairs. I could hear him laughing his head off, right, and I just stood around at the bottom of the stairs. Ollie decided to come back down the stairs. He got to the top landing, so we're talking eight steep stairs, and as he turned the landing, right, he saw Papa, Right. And he got this big beaming smile on his face. And he did something he'd never done before, right? He jumped. You know, sort of a, a superman jump, you know, because and do you know the reason he did it? It's not because he had a death wish, right? It's because he actually expected his papa had the power to catch him, which was in debate at the time. But uh, he he thought that would happen. But he also he thought I had the disposition towards wanting to do it. You know, that when he jumped, I wouldn't just go, ha ha, you know, and let him crash to the ground. That I actually loved him enough to actually catch him. And that's exactly what happened. Like my heart came up through my mouth, uh, uh, but I caught him. Now, can I say, when we come to the God of the Bible, he has immense power and authority. And that is such an important thing for us to understand. Uh, that we can trust him because of his awesome capacity. But why do you trust God? Well, because he is full of grace and full of goodness. And you see those things uh, embedded in creation, the beauty and the generosity, uh, the goodness, they're all qualities that are rejected in chapter 3 by humanity Genesis chapter 3. But nonetheless, they are captured here in these opening chapters. In chapter 3, people do turn their back on God, which raises a whole question about how God should treat people who are rebels. But the whole storyline of the Bible focuses on the generosity and goodness of a God towards people who don't treat him properly, culminating when you get to the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. The most famous verse in the whole Bible, John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only beloved son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Friends, this is the good God who we see in the unfolding storyline of the Bible persists in his goodness and his love and his grace towards us. Friends, here in Genesis chapter 1, we're introduced to a God of unimaginable and awesome power and capacity. Uh, But we're also being introduced to a God that we can trust, uh, trust with our lives. Can I pray for us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you just for even the briefest opportunity uh, to have a look at this opening part of the Bible and to consider who you are. And Father, we pray that in your uh, mercy we'll keep appreciating more and more of your capacity and your generosity and your goodness towards us. Uh, Father, we we just recognise we only get the briefest of glimpses of understanding of this, but we pray you'll keep opening our minds and hearts to appreciate more. And Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that you will help us to work out what it means to trust you in your world and to live knowing uh, that we are just squatting here for a period of time in the place that you have uh, placed us, but that there is an eternity Uh, to be faced up to in relationship with you. Help us to bear that in mind and your good purposes for us. Uh, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.